0: Good morning, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, last time we looked at Romans chapter 7 and learned that we have been freed from the law. We have died to the law. The law, though it is good, right, and holy cannot bring us life because sin hijacks the law and actually brings death. The law also, though good, cannot give us victory over sin and the flesh. And we saw this struggle portrayed in Paul's own life as he recounts what it is like to live under the law. To see God's law, to receive it as the right way to live, and that death and condemnation will come from not fulfilling the law, but never able to obey it, never able to keep it. It is his cry in verses 24 and 25 then, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. This cry leads him then to chapter 8. And here in chapter 8, the assurance of glory, that which is promised in the gospel, reaches its climax. So in verses 1 through 13 then, we see the focus on life, the spirit of life. And here Paul in chapter 8 really unpacks the life of the Spirit for us. In verses 14 through 23, then, he focuses on sonship, what it means to be a child of God, says that we are adopted. In verses 24 through 30, Paul wants to make sure that we understand the hope to which we are called. Not hope, again, as this Faint possibility that something might happen, but a confidence in what God has promised. Confidence in glory. And then in verses 31 through 39, Paul lays out for us ultimate triumph. The ultimate triumph of the Christian through him who has loved us. So if you would then look at Romans chapter 1, we begin today in verse 1. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we ask your blessing on us as we come to your word. And I ask that you would transcend in your word and in the work in your people, that you would transcend my own words and my own capacities and incapacities. That despite my own limitations and failures, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of your people, that you would open them, and that you would help them to see the riches that are in these verses. In your name we pray, amen. So the first assurance of glory is that the Holy Spirit, whom Paul calls here the Spirit of Life in verse 2, has taken up residence in your life and transferred you out of condemnation and into blessing and security. You now live under his presence and power. We walk according to the Spirit, verse 4. We live according to the Spirit, verse 5. We are in the Spirit, verse 9. The Spirit dwells in us, verses 9, and then again in verse 11. And so I've entitled this morning's message, The Spirit of Life. The Spirit of Life. And there really could be no greater contrast than the contrast between chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, and chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And if you will lay hold of what Romans 8 says... It will radically change your life. And I want to give you then three life-giving works of the Holy Spirit in your life. Three life-giving works that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, is doing in your life. Number one, the Holy Spirit liberates you from condemnation. The Holy Spirit liberates you from condemnation, verses one through eight. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This declaration alone, listen, this declaration alone is worth more than anything you own, okay? It is worth more than anything at all. It gloriously contradicts any idea or thought that you or I bear any guilt or penalty for our sin and rebellion, no matter how bad it has been. No matter, no matter how bad of a rebel, no matter how sinfully you have pursued life, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. There cannot be. The real question for us is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? When God says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How has the Holy Spirit then freed us from all condemnation? Well, verse two, first. The Holy Spirit in your life is a new operative principle. That's the best way I can put it. He is a new operating principle in our lives. You can see here how Paul contrasts the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. Now, we've seen the law a lot in the book of Romans, and most of the time, it refers to the law, capital L, the law of God, the law of Moses, the old covenant. In this case here, he's talking about law as as an operating principle in life, like the law of gravity, We don't think about gravity very often, we just kind of live under the system or the law of gravity, don't we? Whether we're throwing a baseball, or whether we are hiking a mountain, or whether we're diving into a pool, or whether or not we think about the fact that we are actually being able to stay in one place on the surface of the planet, we are living under the governance of gravity. Gravity. That's what Paul means here by the law of the spirit of life and the law of of sin and death. We live under the governance of one or the other. And what he says here is we used to live under the law of sin and death. We used to be bound to its authority, its machinery. But the law of the spirit of life This new operative principle in our lives has undone the old one. And we now live bound to the authority of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's governance, his system, if you will. So first of all, the Holy Spirit has freed us from condemnation by installing into our lives, bringing us into a new operating principle of life, a new realm. Secondly, God has condemned sin and fulfilled the law in you. This is verses three and four. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. There we go. Now, here the law is the capital L. This is the law of God, the old covenant. What it could not do. Remember, the law, Paul has said, it was good. It was righteous. It is holy. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. Sin has hijacked the law. Because of sin and flesh, we are not able to keep the law. And so the law could not do what God has now done. And what has He done? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So the Spirit's new order has brought into place, by Jesus' life and death, this condemnation, if you will, of sin and the flesh. You can't separate the work of the Son and the Spirit. And Paul is using a play on words by sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, in the likeness of sinful human beings to die for sin. That is, to die as a substitute sacrifice to deal with sin. He has sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. To die is a substitute sacrifice for sin. By doing that, God condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he executed judgment on sin and the flesh. He sentenced, in Jesus' atoning death, he sentenced them to destruction. So you see, sin no longer sets the terms. We don't live under that operating principle, the law of sin and death. So sin's system, then, its principles' operation are undone. And the law, the old covenant, which is holy and righteous and good, isn't set aside or nullified. It is what? Fulfilled. It's fulfilled. And here's how. The Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, kept it perfectly. He fulfilled the law. And you are now in Him. You are in Christ. That is how the law is fulfilled in us. We could never accomplish or fulfill the law. The only way to do that was to die, and to die united to Christ in his death and resurrection, Jesus' perfect life fulfilled the law, and you, by being in Christ, the law has been fulfilled in you. You see the wonder in the depths of God's mind, how God maintains his own holiness, his own perfection, his own anger and wrath against sin and still can save sinners and rebels without ever violating his own holiness or his own law, his own word. It was kept. It was fulfilled. Jesus' perfect obedience, watch, is transferred to you. But verse 4 makes it clear. The requirement of the law is fulfilled only in those who walk according to the Spirit because only those walking according to the Spirit are those who are in Christ. Now, often we think of our Christian lives as I'm either walking in the Spirit or I'm walking in the flesh as a Christian. We may use that terminology, but that does not fit the terminology as Paul uses it in Romans chapter 8. If you are a Christian, then you are walking in the Spirit. That doesn't just mean being obedient always as a Christian. It means living your Christian life, living life. You are walking in the realm of the Spirit, not in the realm or under the governance of the flesh. And verse 5 and following then explains why this has to be, the incompatibility of the flesh and the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So what's important to understand then is that the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other. These aren't two different parts of you or two different parts of me. These aren't two different impulses in you or in me, but these are dominating powers over your life. You can really see the same thing in Galatians chapter 5. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Paul uses a lot of the same terminology here. And you will see it. Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 16. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So there are certain desires, watch. There are certain desires that belong to the flesh. That realm of governance... Now watch what he goes on to say, and will hold true. for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Sound familiar? Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let's pause right here. As Christians, do we struggle with these things? Absolutely. Absolutely. But in the context of what Paul is saying, he's saying that if you do these things, if you live in them, if you walk in them, you cannot inherit eternal life. Is he saying that as a Christian, if you then fall into sin, you lose eternal life? All of Romans 8 will make sure that we can't think that. What he is saying is that those behaviors belong to the flesh. And if you are living those out, and that is what your life is, then you cannot inherit eternal life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Not kept the flesh around as a partner that we're doing battle with all the time. The desires of the flesh that belong to the flesh, yes. But the flesh itself is crucified if you belong to Christ Jesus. With his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, which is now an echo of verse 16 walk by the Spirit. Now, back to Romans chapter 8. To live according to the flesh, verse 5, is to live under its control, it's to be directed by its values, it's to be oriented by its desires. To live according to the spirit is to live under the spirit's control, is to be directed by his will, to be oriented by the spirit's desires and purposes. Let's talk about the mind. It's another important word that Paul uses here. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. The matters of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the values of the flesh. And then the same with the Spirit. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds. The mind is not just what thinks. It's not just thinking or mental activity. The mind is broader. It is thinking, but it's also the will, the reason, understanding, Affections, all of these things are part of what the word mind means. So the set of the mind is following, really, is following a course of life. It's directing or putting your life in a certain direction. It's the pattern, it's the the system in which you are going to live. To set the mind on the flesh is death. So to follow that course is death, eternal death. Again, eternal judgment is what Paul's talking about. And there is this judgment because the flesh is at enmity with God. To set the mind on the spirit is, on the other hand, life and peace. In other words, to set the mind to set the course of life, to set the sails of life, if you will, according to the Spirit, is to know life. It is to know peace with God. And this is the peace of back in chapter 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer under condemnation, and we are no longer at war with God. And verses 7 and 8 explain this is actually why the mindset of the flesh leads to death. That's why it can only end in death. It's because the mindset on flesh is, first of all, hostile to God. It's hostile to God. It's never neutral. And when there is a claim of neutrality, well, I I don't love God, I'm not a Christian, I don't buy the Bible and all that, I but I don't, I don't hate God. I'm not working against God. I, this claim of neutrality is hostility toward God. It has to be because God is worthy of love and obedience. And anything less than that is hostility to God. Because God has created you. So the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. The mindset on the flesh, secondly, does not submit to God's law. And indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. And we saw this played out in Romans 7. Paul is pointing back to Romans 7, where he's talking about the impossibility of living under the law. And I made this point last time in Romans chapter 7 that those who live under the law are not just the Jews those who have received the law as the revelation, but because they received the law, because it was revealed, the entire human race comes under the law. That's the only way it makes sense to say back in in chapter 6, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. He's not just speaking to Jewish believers, he's speaking to all believers. So, in some sense, every person, whether Jew or Gentile, is under the law because the law has been revealed, because it's been given. And so, the mindset on flesh cannot submit to the law. You might say that that statement is a summary of Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. That is the mind set on the flesh, unable to submit to God's law. It cannot submit to God's law. And thirdly, a mind set on the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please him. No one who is operating in that system can please God. But the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life, has liberated you from condemnation. That is the old way, and it is entirely incompatible with anybody who has the spirit of God. What does it mean to have the spirit of God? Well, this is the second work, life-giving work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that word, if, is another one of these examples where it's not a, a possibility. He's saying, as the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, and he does. You are not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, you can't be in both. You cannot be in both at the same time. To be in the flesh, then, is to be in the realm of the flesh, the old condition of sin and death. You are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, you can't be in the Spirit you dwell, and the flesh. You dwell in one or the other. And being in the flesh, then, is not proneness to sin or temptation. That might be following the desires of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5, but here in the flesh is a position. Paul is speaking in terms of position, where you are. And the Spirit dwelling in you, the Spirit of Christ, he says, If he doesn't, then you don't belong to Christ. You don't belong to him. Now, Paul uses two images here. He talks about us being in the Spirit, and he talks about the Spirit dwelling within us. What's the difference between these two? Or is there one? Well, I think it's just a matter of what Paul is picturing. If when he says that you live in in the spirit, that we are in the spirit, he is picturing us living in that realm where the Holy Spirit reigns and guides and provides and comforts and secures. And when he says that the spirit is dwelling in us, he is picturing the Holy Spirit entering into our lives and taking control of our lives. So they're two just different, and they're almost interchangeable. But there he's just picturing both. But listen, both are completely true from the moment you became a Christian. You don't ever get more of the Holy Spirit. You are never in need of more of the Holy Spirit. Growing in your relationship to the Holy Spirit, yes. Understanding Who the Holy Spirit is and who you are in Him and Him in you, yes. But you don't ever need more of the Spirit. A greater experience or understanding of the Spirit, yes. And there'll be times in your Christian life where you know that. But you don't ever get more of Him and you don't ever lose Him. He has taken up residence in your life. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So the Spirit then living within you, taking up residence in you, is also a guarantee. Because if Christ is in you, again, as Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... In other words, the physical body, the physical body remains subject, subject to physical death because of sin. Even though this is the case, if Christ is in you, the spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, even though we are still bound to bodies that are mortal, we have to almost, in a sense, you could say we have to play out that part. Of judgment, that part of the curse, we still physically die. But even though we are still bound to bodies that are mortal, that are subject to death, we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. And he exerts the power of new spiritual life. This is life that is enjoyed now as deliverance from condemnation. And it is life that is experienced in the future as resurrection life. This body, even though it dies, will be raised. It will be transformed. It will be made fit for glory. All of this is because of righteousness, Christ's righteousness being given or imputed to you and to me. This is the promise, then, of verse 11, right? The promise of resurrection life is proven by Christ's resurrection from the dead. In this way, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, watch, is a guarantee. It is an assurance that God will raise you as he did the Son. So in any time that you doubt or forget or neglect the truth, that you will be raised from the dead, it is assured to you because Jesus was raised from the dead and the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. So you see, it is then the indwelling Holy Spirit who secures your belonging in God's final salvation and how God works out how He saves His people. Because he has taken up residence in you, and since he is life, the Spirit is life, his presence can only result in life for your body in whom he dwells. So then, what does the Holy Spirit's presence mean for living now? This is the third work that the Spirit of life is doing in you. The Holy Spirit enables you or empowers you, if you like that word better. The Holy Spirit empowers you. He enables you, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Okay, so we've been set free. We've been liberated. But we are are debtors, Paul says. But we are not in debt to the flesh. And he never finishes who we are debtors to, you notice. I think that's understood. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And you would expect then, but we are debtors to the Spirit. And I think Paul intends us to see that and understand that. We are not debtors to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything. We are in debt to the Spirit. We are in debt to the Spirit. And to live according to Him. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. This is is the same thought that was in Galatians chapter 5. Anyone who lives this way, who practices these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And it doesn't just mean physical death. He's already said, even for those of us who have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, we're going to die. There is death. We have life because the Spirit's presence in our lives can only result in us being raised from the dead. So this living according to the flesh is not a Christian falling into sin. It's meaning if your life is a practice of the flesh, then you will die. You will die. Now listen, I often say that, and you guys have heard me say this, okay, that there are times when the perspective of the writers of the Bible, the New Testament especially, are kind of from behind the veil. They are from the perspective of what God is doing, God's sovereign acts, his purposes. There are other times that the New Testament writers speak from what I call a street-level view. This is a street-level warning to us as Christians that we are to be participating in the Holy Spirit's work in us by pursuing holiness. This is a street-level warning here. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That does not mean that if you're a Christian, you will lose eternal life and then die because you've lived according to the flesh. Now, you're saying, what? That doesn't make any sense. I know. It will, though. Okay? It will, because the Bible teaches both. You can't soften what Paul says here. You are not earning your salvation by not... The true believer will not live according to the flesh. You can't. You don't live under the law anymore. But from a street-level view, you have to assess your life and look at, am I someone who is in the flesh or in the spirit? Because if I'm in the flesh, I will die a spiritual eternal death. Paul says then, the alternative, verse 13, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So put to death the deeds of the body. Now, what's he he talking about? We know that not all sin is physically done by the body. He's saying that our body, our lives that are lived through our bodies are vehicles for the flesh. The body is a vehicle for the flesh if you're in the flesh. We are to put to death the deeds of the body because that's the vehicle for the flesh. It's no different than Galatians chapter 5. You have crucified sin and the flesh. You are to put to death. But this is a call for active, ongoing participation in the pursuit of holiness by putting to death the deeds of the body, by putting to death sin. In the words of the English Puritan John Owen, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. That's how they talked about it. Whilst, whilst you live, cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. He was right, and that's exactly what Paul is saying here. You be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Listen, the spirit of life empowers you, enables you to put sin to death. It's not all on you. In fact, it can't be. Holiness, watch, holiness is not gained by our own effort, our own resources. It can't be. That's moralism. But by the same, by the same truth, The holiness that God requires is not gained without our participation. So the idea that all we have to do as Christians is surrender. Now, if by surrender, we mean obey. Yes, no longer my own boss, no longer my own master. But if by surrender, we just mean I'm just letting go and letting God. That is not a biblical formulation for holy living. And there are a lot of popular devotionals, some classics, that espouse that kind of sanctification, that way of living life. We do not just let go and let God. The entirety of the New Testament stands against it. This is one place. We are to put to death the deeds of the body. We're to put sin to death. How? By the Spirit. That's what he says. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. So again, there is this call for active participation. We, as the people of God, are to pursue holiness, we are to be alert to sin in our lives. And the presence of the Spirit in our lives gives us every motivation and every hope for doing just that. It makes the impossible possible. In fact, it makes it necessary and inevitable if you are in Christ and the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Lord, may you take your word today and move us, your people, toward greater holiness, not because we must perform and achieve, but because we already live in the Spirit and the law of the Spirit of life has liberated us from the law of sin and death. And Holy Spirit, you have come to take up residence in every one of your people Lord, help us to grasp this. Lord, give us energy to put sin to death because of it. We know, Lord, that you go before us. We know, Holy Spirit, that you will not abandon the work that you have begun. And so we give you praise, and we know that there is glory ahead. In your name we pray, amen.